Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs by Marguerite Young. Uh, I went back and renumbered the uh, chapters, the episodes a little bit to go with it, because I... So, yeah, I got interrupted with, for the phone call for chapter one. Otherwise, the chapters are really short, so there was they, they should just be one episode, but that didn't work out. So I, so you have the introduction is zero, and then chapter one has two episodes to go with it. And that's marked part one and part two at the top. I can't put season episode 1.1, 1.2, it won't let me do it. But we are on chapter two. I also, because I wanted to let people know that I had started a new book, uh, Paper Pills on Twitter. I'm not sure Facebook, but for Twitter and Instagram for sure. Paper Pills is has scheduled the group read of Harp Song for a Radical uh, to start on October 1st. I know I've started uh, a little bit early, but I wanted to in order to, because I'm reading it out loud. Of course, if I read it during the group read, um, it would be different. But um, yeah, so I'm a little bit ahead of that group read, but I will still be tweeting about it and, and participating. Um, I've asked for the hashtags and, um, and of course I'll announce it on here. So if you want to join in, you can. And, uh, yeah, it's always a lot of fun. So you should definitely, definitely plan to join. So chapter two, short chapters, about three pages. There had occurred on the day of the San Francisco Grand Preparedness Day bombing, which would help to lead this blind stumbling nation to war. The death of James Whitcomb Riley, bosom friend of Debs, in the poet's house on Lockerbie Street in Indianapolis, which had been known as the Street of Dreams because the bard of childhood lived there as life's most charming guest, and that was where he could be seen to his old age, sunning in his garden, his large umbrella shadowing him and the children of his dreams. Oh my God, little bud has been taken from us, President Wilson was remembered to have exclaimed as the tears splashed down his granite cheeks. Now what will become of us? He had sent a wire of condolence to the poet's relatives in that state capital where the mirrors in the state house were being draped with black. For some time the poet would have no burial, as he had expressed the desire to be buried at home in the old graveyard on the brandy wine where his mother and his father and his little brother Hum were. Hum was a drunk, and he had expressed also the desire to be, to be buried at Crown Hill, the capital city necropolis, which was so vast a place that if ever he had awakened in the night there, he would not have known how to get out. The pressure brought by the advocates of the vast necropolis had won out over the little country graveyard. And how could America live without the little bud, who was the poet's imaginary child, and thus, having never been born, could never die? <clears throat> okay, I don't know that much about James Whitcomb Riley. I know Miss uh, Margaret Young was a huge fan and had originally planned to write a biography about him, but then went into Debs. But um, yeah, I'd have, I'm going to have to look up stuff on him because I really don't know that much about him. The truth was that the little bud was the little long-ago boy who was Riley, just as almost everybody knew, and in his age, he said that little bud was the only child he had ever loved, that he had studied real children in order to understand better this child of his dreams, of his imaginings, bud, who was invisible to others but visible to him, walking in a crooked way along the sun-splashed, tree-shaded streets of that Indianapolis, which he claimed to have to be heaven's counterpart right here on earth, and followed by so many pigeons because he would offer so much popcorn to real children in his wake. In one pocket was a popcorn for little bud, but in the other pocket was something for pa, as he would say, a bottle of corn. 
When the poet died, the newspaper elegiasts had consigned him to that heaven to which little orphan Annie would lift him up the golden stairs to where the little red apple trees were, a land of childhood where the heart grows younger and all men are children in eternity, the old man becoming once more the babe pillowed on his mother's breast. A great admirer of the Hoosier's poet's little, Lanford, little orphan Annie, so he must have written Little Orphan Annie, just as Debs was, President Wilson used to dance a jig in which he acted out the clowning role of the bewitched little orphan girl for his first wife and their three daughters. Lloyd George would later recall that he would never have gotten through the night bombardments of London if he had not had Riley's Little Orphan Annie by his bedside within reach of his arm, the book, of course, and not the little girl. When the news of Riley's death reached Debs, he had taken time out from his vocal opposition to the coming war to write his most personal elegy for the old-timer who had been a fellow traveler on life's grassy highway, with whom he would catch up when he rounded the last bend on the ever-bending, mist-shrouded road. People who knew, who knew Debs well were surprised by what seemed his withdrawal and silence. He was ailing indeed, and looking back upon his past in a personal sense as he prepared for publication in book form, his Pastels of Men, a collection of five miniature elegiac biographies of the key or master spirits of his life, which he had begun with his impressionistic recollections of James Whitcomb Riley, the Hoosier bard of the old home place in the days of childhood that had been so happy before the Civil War, or should have been, Riley having ever preferred, if anybody asked him, the antebellum to the postbellum world. The other key spirits of whom Debs wrote were Wendell Phillips, the Civil War abolitionist who, a Brahmin of Brahmins in Boston, had outraged his fellow Bostonians by preaching Karl Marx's Red Revolution from Beacon Hill's Golden Dome. Robert Greene Ingersoll, the passionate pagan of Peoria, who was a believer in no miracle, but who in his life achieved one, that of being both an avowed atheist and critic of the mistakes of Moses and the Republican Speaker of the House, Eugene Field, the iconoclastic Puck, whose column Sharps and Flats in the Chicago Morning News had almost no musical criticism, but was very much devoted to sardonic portraits of the follies of men, and who, the author of the elegy Little Boy Blue, had become Debs's friend a short time before he died. And last but not least, of the beads upon this Arabic rosary, John Swinton, martyred, self-emulating newspaper reporter whose striking for life or labor's side of the labor question had been one of the finest accounts of the non-sophoric Debs Rebellion back in 1894 against the despotism of the purple-robed many-crowned George Mortimer, Mortimer Pullman, Emperor of Pullman Palace Sleeping Cars, or land barges. His name is wide asleep, according to an essay on him in the magazine Debs edited, the Locomotive Fireman's Magazine, long years before the strike that had threatened to stop all the trains running in this country, and almost did. At the time of writing his elegy for his old pard Riley, Debs had felt increasingly, increasingly his isolation and loneliness, as even many who had professed socialism and pacifism had jumped from the dashboard to answer their country's call. Debs had not for a moment claimed that the author of Little Bud and Little Orphan Annie and Little Wesley and the Happy Little Cripple had shared his views as to a political and economic cure-all by which to head heal society's woes, woes, woes. When toward the end of the poet's life, newspaper reporters had come to his door to ask what he thought of the probable entrance of the American nation into the far distant European war, he would say that he wanted, wanted to talk about something really important, and that was Little Bud. 
At the same time, however, Riley had been writing to his beloved Camelot, Miss Edith Thomas, editor of Harper's, to warn her that the preparedness day people were bound to have their way, that this nation would be catapulted into war in spite of all the protests of pacifists, among them in the peace parades this transplanted Ohio poetess, who in her gray rain bonnet and long gray ulster with violets at her throat signified all that to him was good and true and beautiful in the old Ohio from which she had come to the great harbor city and to which she increasingly returned in her thought-haunted songs as the war hysteria mounted and American farm boys were being shipped over there. Some would sing that tune to the words underwear. So, Edith Thomas... So this is interesting because this is definitely about what you don't hear much about as far as World War One, as far as the conscientious objectors and pacifists uh, and socialists at that time. So it's neat that this is a cycle that uh, that has happened in America because you have that. You had that with World War Two, even though then it wasn't only it wasn't it, it was even less I think than World War One because it was considered especially after Pearl Harbor. And then, um, and with the, uh, um, with World War II, you had actually a fascist party in the U.S. that was pushing for fascism. Um, that I know they had some big gathering in New York City, like of about 20,000, uh, or rally for, in support of it. So there's that difference in World War II, but then you have it come around again, uh, for the Iraq War that had some of the largest worldwide protests ever against a conflict that nobody wanted to be in. Um, so yeah, it's, it's weird to, to see this cyclical thing. Repeating itself, that's what they say about history. It just keeps repeating itself. Debs was of the opinion in his pastels of men that the day when James Wickham Riley was born, nature, in love, certainly crooned above the cradle and dowered him with her most precious gift as he opened his baby eyes upon the world. His child had been spent along the winding bank of Little Creek Brandywine, rioting with other boys from the Little Red Schoolhouse. He had gone down to the old swimming hole, had wandered among pawpaw and hazel thickets and persimmon trees. He had fortunately never been a victim of that artificial education that, in the words of the seer Ingersoll, polishes pebbles and dims diamonds. He had listened with rapture to the songs of feathered choristers. Like the vagrant butterfly, he loved to flit in perfect abandon from field to field, from flower to flower, extracting the native sweets his riper genius was to distill into the dripping honey of his melting melodies. Debs gave praise to Riley's when the frost is on the pumpkin as the Hoosier psalm of life. Because of the political importance of this bucolic poem by a poet who had never tilled the soil in his life, except in his pastoral poems, which he had written under the mask of an old-time imaginary farmer, Benjamin F. Johnson of Boone, the Hoosier campaigners crying up and down the state at election time, I'll see you all at the polls when the frost is on the pumpkin and the fodder's in the shop. Rolling stock editor Elijah J. Halford, who ran a tight shop at the Republican president-making Indianapolis Journal, had known what guilty party chewed the eraser and what guilty cockroach swelled himself up by eating the paste from the pot, had dismissed, under the influence of Debs, his economical assumption that no up-and-coming city newspaper needed a poet in the office brain at the moon, and so it kept Riley on even when he was trying to cut expenses to the bone. For this, 
Leigh Halford, who had become President Big Ben Harrison's secretary and keeper of finances in the White House, where he watched over the na national finances and the fate of rolling stock with a gimlet eye as he watched over every paste pot and postage stamp and saw that no rats chewed away the carpet in Lincoln's bedroom deserved his country's praise. In this funerary piece, in which even the hawk-eyed President Wilson could find no treason, for Debs was expressing what Riley would have called his embalmed or embalming thoughts, the old man who was hunched up in bed suffering from broken lute strings in his long throat, which had been inflamed by anarchic anti-war speeches inviting strangulation by the noose, did not mention the difficulties in giving birth to labor speeches and articles which he wrote with infinite pain and great awkwardness, as the pen was not made for his paw, his horny hand, which could handle a fireman's shovel better than a pen. Although not given to self-congratulations for any possible achievement of his own, Debs believed that he could claim credit for having been the first to give to Riley the name Little Bench-Legged Poet. The name had been suggested by Riley's recollection of his father at his old workbench in Greenfield, shaving dolls and hobby horses for his children as the golden shavings drifted around him in the dim air of the old barn, and his bud, the little shaver or shaveling, played among the shavings strewn like baby curls or chicken feathers at his father's feet. Perhaps one evening when Debs and Riley were coming home by buggy down a velvet road and the crescent moon was drifting in the clouds overhead, Debs, upon hearing these and other recollections of the old father at the workbench, had exclaimed in a jocular way, Oh, I see it all now. You are the little bench-legged poet. There is nothing so fine in Debs' of estimation as Riley's impersonations, when he recited such country poems as When the Frost is on the Pumpkin, or Nothing to Say, My Daughter, or Out to Old Aunt Mary's. Nothing could be more wonderful to the music-loving, clowning Debs than the wooing, cooing, old-time frontier fiddler of Riley's world word portrait, whose fiddle was his pigeon sweetheart with the ribbons round her neck at the square dance in the old red barn in the long ago when the music unraveled like webs at the dancer's feet. The greatest line that Riley ever wrote, according to old Debs, was that with which he perhaps wished to reproach at a subliminal level the Croesus capitalists, who thought that as Croesus rhymes with Jesus, Crisis, Jesus. Okay, rhymes of Jesus. They must be the same. For Riley was now their public idol, and their mascot, and the proof of their essential goodness. There's nothing at patheticer than just a bin rich. Okay, this is a <laughs> this is a accent. There's nothing at patheticer than just a bin rich. Debs was profoundly convinced that the money that came to Riley in his later years had added nothing to his inspiration, nothing to his fame, and nothing to his happiness. His clothes, like his words, Debs noted, had to fit to perfection. He was always clean-shaven and neat as a fashion plate. Hold on. Hold on, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. Alrighty. Debs had been filled with praise for Riley's talents as fiddler, banjoist, cartoonist, and decorator or sign painter. He did not stop here to recall the youth of the poet when he had been a traveling performer with the wizard oil medicine wagon, and had recited when the wagon stepped to country audiences. And had recited from the wagon stepped to country audiences his little red hen and baby chick poems, and then had moved among the crowd selling bottles of cure-alls for your guitar, all having usually an open opiate base, and good for everything that ailed you, and bee stings too, and guaranteed to grow a crop of hair on the bald pate, enough grass to require a garden rake, 
and keep you safe through a long winter of sleep until you should awaken with the flowers in the spring. The poet's passage from this world to the next world, which would be the repetition of this world from beginning to end, would seem to many to have come at the same time as the death of that American innocence, which, of course, had never been unless in dreams. But who could say, Debs had asked, as he considered the problem of what was real and what was unreal, that the child world of the little bench-legged poet was not, after all, the real world, the sweet and sane world, where love and peace and innocence and kindness reigned and war and strife and hatred were unknown. Certainly Debs, an old man who would soon be cast naked into the storm, could not. The spirit of Riley had gone home where a man ought to be. He sleeps in the sanctuary of the elect and the blessings of the children he loved, and they will wore, wore, wear garlands of old-fashioned roses, fresh with the breath of morning, and memory of their poet and friend through all the coming years. Although meeting many, although meeting many times in pubs along life's highway or at the bar of the old Denison House in the capital city or on a flowering bank, both Don Quixote's in quest of the golden world of happiness and harmony and peace, simply and absolutely Debs had never been able to convince Riley that the earthly paradise of man's earliest imaginings and dreams and the transformation of the masses of mankind could be achieved through the overthrow of the corrupt capitalist governments of the world, all the old money kings who had gold and silver dollars outnumbering the stars in the sky. Debs and Riley had not expected to agree with each other. The poet had recalled in his old age that he had never voted but once, and that was when he had intended to vote for Big Ben Harrison, but as his wrist had trembled, he had cast his vote quite inadvertently, it seemed, not to the right to the Republican slot, but to the left to the Democrat slot, when, as everybody knew, the Democrats were the upholders of pubs and a man's need for a little applejack with which to wet his whistle. The Republicans were supposedly dry. <laughs> All righty. And so I'm also, so I, I publish, like if I do a week's worth of recordings, I publish them on Substack. I've started doing that instead. I was doing them one by one. But I was like, nah. Just did a week at a time. Um, doing a week at a time. So yeah, if I find, like I'll look up more about what James Wickham Riley and, and uh, I'll add a link to it if you ever want to. Like I, I did look up the preparedness day bombing and things like that, <clears throat> the Lusitania. And so I will put those links to uh, historical events that you might not be familiar with. So I will put that on my sub stack um, if you are subscribed. All right. Thank you for listening. Bye.